Hello, and welcome to the Identity Paradox Inside the Racial Pharmacon, a podcast examining anti-racist theories and practices aimed at dismantling destructive identitarian politics and ideologies, both in the U.S. and abroad. Please note that discussions deal with very difficult subject matter, so every episode comes with a general content warning. And I'm your host, Carlos Gallego, Associate Professor of English, as well as both Distinguished Teaching Professor in Humanities here at St. Olaf College. This podcast is part of the programming brought to you by the Bolt Chair Endowment. So special thanks to the Bolt family for making this programming possible. If you enjoyed today's podcast, make sure to subscribe for future episodes. And now, the show. What SoundCloud is, dude. Oh, that's, you are amazing. So you haven't heard the first episode that you're on yet for uh, no two-part. Of course not. All right. Yeah, that makes total sense. So, uh, shall we start the second episode? Considering <laughs> the actors first. who never watch their own movies. Dude. That's fantastic. You, I, I can't even name one because I don't know of any who does it. But uh, yeah, Maggie Smith. Okay, well there you go. Okay. Now, now we have one. <laughs> yeah, in the entire the, the I'm pulling up SoundCloud right now. You, the demographic of actors that don't watch their own movies consists of one to two people. Anyway, uh, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's jump in. Let's go. All right. Hello, and welcome back to the Identity Paradox Inside the Russian Pharmacon, a podcast coming to you from downtown Minneapolis. That's the background noise, including helicopters, sirens, and citizens who are pissed off about living in a white supremacist city that keeps pushing systemic murder against disenfranchised communities, now with the help of Biden's federally deputized task forces. Yeah. I'm angry, and I'm also Carlos Gallego, he, him, and this is part two of episode two, in which I'm again joined by our guest co-host, Dr. Rob Kendrick. Do you want to introduce yourself this time, Rob? Tell us about your pronouns, your work, what you do, anything? Uh, I answer to he, they. Um, I'm not rigid about pronouns, um, and I'm pretty much the same as our last, as I was our last podcast, right? Um, I'm co-chair. I'm still co-chair. I'm still distressed <laughs> about the horrible state of the world, right? Um, and about human nature. So let's dive in. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, first and foremost, I want to apologize to our listeners. Uh, if I seem a bit distracted or more animated than usual today, uh, we are recording on June 14th, 2021. It's actually a very sad day again. In the city of Minneapolis, uh, where sadness is becoming a daily reality in a city that will murder its way, quote, back to a brunch normal. Last night, people were holding space for Winston Smith, the man murdered in plain daylight by sheriff officers who were deputized as federal agents or federal marshals or task force. Does it really matter what they're called at this point? Conduct a Fred Hampton-style hit, i.e. murder, on on him, on Winston Smith, uh, all... If you don't know this, all that is happening while George Floyd Square is literally being cleared up by the same city and by the same mayor. So uh, this is how you apparently win trust back from a healing community in the city of Minneapolis. Uh, you basically allow someone to get murdered in your city at the same time that you're clearing a space that has been held for over a year in order to uh, not forget, right, a memorial. But if it's not created by the state, then it has no legitimacy, apparently, because we are not a government of the people for the people. Let's just call it what it is. Uh, and more importantly, uh, 
we don't bother with assassinating people uh, during the night anymore, like Fred Hampton. Now we just do it in broad daylight, as Winston Smith's murder happened, and as we all saw George Floyd get murdered in plain daylight. Uh, this is our historical norm, and to be honest, it's been part of America's historical norm for a long time now, and only some of America is waking up to that reality. A large part of America, I think, is still in denial. Uh, they want to go back to normal crowd, and a large part of that is in not only denial of the reality of racism, they want to encourage the silencing of those people who are trying to call attention to such things, which is why there's a war against critical race theory at the moment on behalf of one specific political party. So uh, last night, as people were holding space for uh, Winston Smith, uh, a brave young woman by the name of Diana Marie Natyek positioned her car so that other protesters wouldn't get hit in, any, in case anyone tried to ram into them in a kind of Charlottesville manner. And I've seen this, having been a marshal last year during the George Floyd protest. I've seen angry drivers not care for crowds and drive through crowds. Uh, luckily, we were able to get people dispersed in that one incident last year downtown. We did, we did not become a news story. But uh, I have personally witnessed this kind of white rage, if you will, at the very fact that people are protesting uh, some kind of racial injustice. So uh, Diana Marie Nadjik positioned her car so that other protesters, protesters wouldn't get hit in case anyone tried to ram into them. And of course, a white male with a history of violence against women, a misogynist, again, showing the practical inseparability of fascist racist thinking from misogyny. Uh, he struck her vehicle, which then I believe struck Diana Marie, uh, and it took her life, tragically. Uh, she saved lives yesterday, and that needs to be recognized. People need to speak up about this. Now, people are not speaking up about it. In Minneapolis, people are, but nationally, the assassination of Winston Smith has gotten very, very little coverage, and Diana Marie Natchik has not appeared in one national newspaper that I know of at this point. Uh, the Star Trib has covered that in its typical, very neoliberal fashion, uh, by first calling attention to the fact that protesters assaulted the driver that was one of the leads right yeah. uh and of course again reframing it we're going back to normal and uptown is one of those gentrified areas where you protect uh, because of uh, real estate and uh, property uh value so um our frat boy mayor uh, is nowhere to be seen, has not spoken about this at all. Our oil-guzzling governor is busy fishing while the lakes still have living fish in them. And I say this because he has betrayed indigenous peoples by permitting Line 3 to continue. And today, the federal Minnesota federal, the Minnesota Court of Appeals basically ruled in favor of the state and of Enbridge and of corporations to continue to drill underneath the Mississippi at risk of uh, basically contaminating uh, the Earth's surface drinking water. Uh, so congratulations, uh, Governor Waltz, for that, that fantastic betrayal of indigenous tribes that you vowed and promised you would never, never violate their treaty if this pipeline contract went through indigenous lands, which it does, and you have, so you're a liar and a coward. I'm just calling you out personally. And so while people uh, basically continue to suffer at the hands of such authorities attempting to push us into an amnesiac return or amnesiac, I don't know how to pronounce that, return to normal, basically amnesia and a return to normal uh, so that we keep suffering but without remembering that this has been happening, that we suffer silently because the media will continue to either not cover this story or frame it just like the cops did last night. This is your fault, BLM protesters for being on the street in the first place. And this is coming from people who were there, literally. This is what the cops are saying. 
especially in uptown, right, where you don't belong because there are Facebook uptown crime watchers making sure you only see black, brown thugs and not black, brown people asking for transparency and justice. Sympathy towards such communities is apparently rationed here in Minneapolis. You only get so much for a certain amount of time. And yes, let's keep protecting violent white men while demonizing victims as drug addicts, thugs, and just troublemakers. Last night, according to people on the scene, when the cops showed up with rubber bullets and mace for the protesters, not the murder, right? And they assaulted the murderer. They didn't detain him. They didn't restrain him. They assaulted him. Star trip. They redacted it later because they constantly keep redacting it because that is one of the major prerequisites for a Pulitzer Prize is constant redacting. Um, the people wonder. Well, the problem is the Star Trib is not engaging in journalism, right? It's just right publishing police reports as journalism, right? And that's not going to apply. Exactly. The, Sorry for my interruption. No, no, please interrupt at any time you feel the need or desire, Rob. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it's documented that a lot of their incorrect reports come from police. So, yeah, the police never lie. We know that for sure now based on the trial. So last night, according to people on the scene, when the cops showed up, basically they uh, attacked the uh, protesters, not the actual assailant. And people wonder why this isn't going away. There's a reason racism and identity thinking mimic psychopathic traits, at least to me. We saw this dangerous commingling of psychopathic behavioral traits and the thinking that motivates it in action again last night. But hey, Biden is president and there are no more racial tensions in America. Harris is taking care of all the children in cages at the border, inviting women fleeing domestic abuse to just go back home. And life is just a dream because, quote, America is back. By the way, Freedom Day in the UK has been slightly delayed due to an unexpected rise in new COVID strain related <laughs> hospitalization. So maybe next month, you Brits. Uh, I'm telling you, Rob, not only was Adorno correct about life not living and suffering, not being allowed to speak, the world is so full of idiots and they seem to have a lot of power as the uh, musical group <laughs> Jane's Addiction. That is our history. Yeah, yep. and it's like Jane's Addiction song uh, and people still think that police reform is possible in this country. It's amazing to me that they think that honestly, I don't understand it. It's like a privileged reality where they don't see systemic cover-ups. They don't, they don't want to know that police turn off their cameras, which was supposed to lead to reform. Uh, they don't want to know that police lie, which is not supposed to happen. They don't want to know that police blame the victims initially, as, as well as the established media, because it undermines that reality of potential reform, right? It's essentially cops abuse their power with literal impunity, as do a lot of politicians. And I say this with my father having been a firefighter and EMT, so by the way, don't please that I think public servants because I don't. I just hate racist fascists, okay? And apparently there are more than enough of those in our quote-unquote forces, and yes, I extend that to the military. And I say all of this because the apprehension of a murderer is reframed by cops as, quote, an assault by the crowd. I just said that, and it's unbelievable that that can take place and that can, it can be republished as a fact in the leading newspaper uh, for the state of Minnesota. I think that the veneer of Minnesota nice is dead. I think that most BIPOC folks uh, I've encountered in the 10 years I've lived in Minnesota have never felt Minnesota nice unless they don't understand how assimilating to white culture protects you from being too other or too different to notice that you don't belong within this Minnesota nice world. And these notions of othering or being too different or being too other are some concepts that will actually come back to today. 
Uh, but I don't think Minnesota Nice is ever coming back after these last two years. It's done. It's over. Está muerto ese mito. Anything you want to add, Rob? Yeah, I'm not as confident as you are, Carlos, that Minnesota Nice is gone, has been shattered, because it seems too synonymous with whiteness. So how is Minnesota Nice going to go away? I just think that it's the perception of what Minnesota has gone through in the last two years that undermines its capacity to still claim to be a nice state when cops knee, kneel on people's necks for 10 minutes until they die. Yep. I mean, we'll see. We'll see, right? Yep. It is a Mary Tyler Moore city, but I think it's becoming the George Floyd city. And I think a lot of people don't like that, which is why people uptown were throwing eggs from certain condos uh, to the people holding space for Winston Smith. And eventually, you know, not those people, but others just came back with cars and rammed into the crowd. So uh, there was, there were bad intentions. This was not an accident. This was an attack. This was vehicular homicide. So, and he's being held under that uh, charge. So, all right. Again, apologies uh, if I sound angry. I am. I led with that. I'm trying to be uh, transparent, trying to be honest. So, uh, yeah, I just thought it was necessary to say that. And I, I understand what you're saying too, Rob. Uh, it, ideology is so powerful. I think Marx would be astounded at the, reco uh, the powers of recuperation that uh, capitalism and the established state have uh, shown throughout the centuries, uh, the last two particularly. So, who knows? We'll see. Okay, well, after that most unfortunate of prefaces and unfortunate in its necessity and its reality, as promised, today we'll be discussing the second half of this podcast title, Inside the Racial Pharmacon, by explaining the term pharmacon and its history in the world of philosophy. Uh, throughout, we'll be making connections to some of the main points brought up in part one of this second episode, connecting the tensions that Adorno theorized, particularly in concepts like the paradox of identity, to quote Lucero. Some of the ideas we'll be discussing today in regards to Jacques Derrida and deconstruction. We'll conclude by discussing how all these different ideas have influenced contemporary understandings of race and racism, as well as anti-racist theory and praxis. But before we jump into that discussion, a couple of quick notes on part one. Uh, I just want to touch on the analytic versus continental because uh, Rob asked me that question in the middle of me talking about something else. And I just want to do a little bit more of do justice to that because it will reappear again today. Um, the analytic versus continental philosophy divide. So on the one side, you have analytic philosophy that can be understood as kind of focused or centered on questions that deal with, you know, the analysis, analytic analysis of thought, language, logic, ooh, motorcycles. Uh, Analysis of thought, language, logic, knowledge, mind, etc. I think we mentioned this in our last episode. Uh, while continental philosophy is concerned with questions like the relationship of modernity and historical progress, Hegel and Nietzsche, for example, uh, the individual and society, existentialism, uh, language and power dynamics, Derrida, uh, and even Nietzsche again. Uh, early versus later, Wittgenstein for me personally, this is Ludwig Wittgenstein, the famous philosopher. For me, Wittgenstein embodies the human being, the divide, right? Because uh, Wittgenstein's early uh, work, uh, Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, uh, published in 1921, is considered a classic text that goes a lawyer, I think, I think that's guy's lawyer. Uh, Harley joke, again, sorry. Uh, that book uh, in 1921 is considered a classic of 
text in analytic philosophy, right? And uh, later on in his life in 1953, Philosophical Investigations is published, again, same author, Wittgenstein, which in many ways is an argument against his earlier uh, thesis uh, put forth in Tractatus. So Wittgenstein kind of argued against himself. Tractatus, a classic for analytic philosophy, philosophical investigations, a classic for continental philosophy. So there you go. Or to date it back even further than that, Kant, Hegel, and Nietzsche uh, kind of embody this divide, right? Kant on one side, Nietzsche definitely on the, on the other side, and depending on how you read Hegel, both sides can appropriate them. Uh, so in many ways, I think Nietzsche is kind of like the grandfather of the continental philosophy analytic divide that I think in many ways begins with Kant. Uh, and Marx is always left out of this debate because Marx is not considered a philosopher, even though he is a philosopher. So just a minor clarification on that divide. Also, a couple of other things. Heidegger was never the official philosopher of Nazi party. He remained a Nazi until uh, after the war, and he never uttered a public apology for the Holocaust or his Nazism, but he was never, quote, the official philosopher of the Nazi party. I also mistakenly referred to the Institute for Social Research, which is the institute that Max Horkheimer uh, started, basically, you know, taking the Frankfurt uh, model of the Institute for Social Research and kind of restarting it in New York City, trying to get a donor to be a part of it. I mistakenly called the Institute for Social Research uh, in New York as the New School for Social Research. Uh, and there's a reason that both uh, schools are famous for being progressive. Uh, the new school was founded before the Institute, I believe in 1919. Uh, but uh, they both were very open to trying to not only inviting, but trying to find spaces uh, and positions for uh, Jewish intellectuals in exile from Nazi Germany during the war. So props to both the schools and there are links to each in case you're interested in the history. Uh, also, there were no medical doctors serving as authors in the authoritarian personality. I'm mistakenly said doctors, uh, and there weren't. There were uh, three psychologists, Elsie uh, Franco Brunswick, uh, Daniel Levinson, and Nevet Sanford, and I apologize for not naming them in the previous episode. Uh, so, yes, yeah, sorry about that. And finally, just a clarification, I did, Spencer Rob's question, I did read parts of all the sections of Thornton's Static Theory, although looking at the newest translation, it's very different from the one that I grew up with, which kind of breaks it up into numbered aphorisms. Uh, so no, I didn't read it uh, bookend to bookend, but I did make a, a point to look at all the sections. And it's interesting because the new translation and uh, the translator's introduction or preface talks about the repetitiveness in aesthetic theory, and it was never a complete work. I don't know that before completing it, so it's a kind of a, a weird read to say the least, and close to like 400 pages. Anyway, anything you feel you need to clarify, Rob? I'm good. Of course, you are. You don't make mistakes. All right, so uh, just a quick summary of what we covered in part one of this two part episode. Well, we unpacked the concept of the identity paradox by explaining the general philosophy underlying the guy, Edmund Husserl who theorized in The Crisis of European Sciences and Transcendental Phenomenology, that's titled, that the concept of the self engenders a paradox, quote, the paradox of human subjectivity, which is being a subject in the world and at the same time being an object in the world, subject and object. The reason for unpacking Husserl's philosophy was to highlight the long debates around the question of subjectivity and objectivity, or subject and object, and their possible reconcilability, which Husserl obviously questioned until the end of days, as indicated by that quote. We trace this debate around the reconcilability of object and subject back to Kant and Hegel, the two forefathers of phenomenological thought, before Husserl. 
We then transition to the work of Theodore Adorno to explain the relationship between his theory of negative dialectics, specifically the non-identical, and how it intersects with Husserl's paradox of human subjectivity, quote. Oh, and they were both persecuted by the Nazis due to their Jewish heritage, and Martin Heidegger, the author of the highly influential work Being in Time, published in 1927, became and didn't cease being a Nazi until after war, as I mentioned earlier. We say all this because Husserl and Adorno both had major problems with Heidegger, Husserl on a personal and professional level, and the Nazis and Heideggers are back in this episode, believe it or not, uh, but this episode is not about Nazis or Heidegger, even though they will make a cameo appearance. Today is about Jacques Derrida and his take on the concept of the pharmacon. Quoting again from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, uh, because these experts take the time to publish excellent summaries, so I don't see the point in offering a less than excellent summary of an excellent summary. I'm not a supplement, so I do supplement the entries with commentary and riffs. Did you catch that Derrida joke, Rob? I did. Is that funny? No. <laughs> Are you laughing at your joke? Yep. <laughs> so you're funny, but I'm not. Right. Uh, the following is an excellent entry on Derrida from Professor Leonard Lawler, published in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. So now I am quoting extensively from Professor Lawler's entry on Derrida. Jack Derrida, 1930-2004, was the founder of Deconstruction, a way of criticizing not only both literary and philosophical texts, but also political institutions. Although Derrida at times expressed regret concerning the fate of the word deconstruction, its popularity indicates the wide-ranging influence of his thought in philosophy, in literary criticism and theory, in art, and in particular, architectural theory and in political theory. Indeed, Derrida's fame nearly reached the status of a media star, with hundreds of people filling auditoriums to hear him speak, with films and television programs devoted to him, with countless books and articles devoted to his thinking. Besides critique, the reading and the construction consists in an attempt to reconceive the difference that divides self-consciousness, the difference of the of and consciousness of oneself. So what is the difference of consciousness of oneself? But even more than the reconception of difference, and perhaps more importantly, deconstruction attempts to render justice. And we'll come back to this. Indeed, deconstruction is, a rel is relentless in this pursuit since justice is impossible to achieve. And again, we'll come back to that concept at the end. Derrida was born on July 15, 1930, in Elbiar, Algeria, which is a suburb of Algiers, then a part of France, because, you know, colonialism. Uh, he was born into a Sephardic Jewish family, uh, because Derrida's writing concerns auto-bio-graphy, autobiography, both hyphens, uh, in other words, writing about one's life as a form of relation to oneself. Uh, many of his writings are autobiographical. So, for instance, in Monolingual, Monolingualism of the Other, 1998, Derrida recounts how, when he was in the Lycée, that's high school in France, uh, the Vichy uh, regime in France proclaimed certain interdictions concerning the native languages of Algeria, in particular Berber. Derrida calls his experience of the interdiction, quote, unforgettable and generalizable. In fact, the, quote, Jewish laws passed by the Vichy regime interrupted his high school studies. And again, here come the damn Nazis, right? Always interrupting knowledge and progress. Immediately after World War II, Derrida started to study philosophy. In 1949, he moved to Paris, where he prepared for the entrance exam 
the philosophy for the prestigious Ecole Normale Supérieure. Uh, Derrida failed his first attempt at this exam, but passed it in his second try in 1952. So if you fail, don't worry about it. So did Derrida. In one of the many eulogies that he wrote for members of his generation, Derrida recounts that as he went into the courtyard toward the building in which he would sit for the second try at the exam, Gilles Deleuze, a very famous French philosopher who would later become famous, he was young at this point, passed him, passed Derrida, smiling and saying, my thoughts are with you, my very best thoughts, end quote. Indeed, Derrida entered the Ecole Normale, Normale at at age when remarkable gener when a remarkable generation of philosophers and thinkers was coming of age, and this is true, it's one of the most impressive generation of scholars uh, in the 20th century. We have already mentioned Deleuze, but there was also, but there was also Foucault, Althusser, Lyotard, Barth, and Marine, Merleau-Ponty, Sartre, and de Beauvoir, Lévi-Strauss, Lacan, Ricourt, Blanchot, and Levinas were still alive. The 50s in France was the time of phenomenology. There's Cyril. And Derrida studied closely Husserl's then published works, as well as some of the archival material that was then available. The result was a master's thesis from the academic year 1953-1954 called The Problem of Genesis in Husserl's Philosophy. Derrida published the text in 1990. So what is almost 40 years between him writing this thing and publishing it? This is going to kind of give you insight into Derrida's personality and attitude towards institutions. Um, most importantly, at the Ecole Normale, Derrida studied Hegel with John uh, Hippolyte. Hippolyte, along with uh, Maurice de Gandillac, uh, was to direct Derrida's doctoral thesis, quote, the ideality of the literary object. Derrida never completed his thesis. Let me repeat that. Derrida never wrote his doctoral dissertation. His studies with Hippolyte, however, led Derrida to a noticeably Hegelian reading of Husserl. Ooh, Kant would have loved, not Kant, but uh, others would have loved that at the time of Husserl, the fact that he engaged in a Hegelian critique. Husserl himself probably would have thought, but that is Derrida's style. Uh, this reading was one already underway through the works of Husserl's assistant, Eugene Fink. So Derrida's not on his own here in terms of uh, doing a Hegelian reading of Husserl. Derrida claimed in his 1980 speech, The Time of a Thesis, presented on the occasion of him finally receiving his doctorate. So he's working on his doctorate in the 50s. He gets his PhD in 1980. By this point, Derrida is already famous. So interesting life story for an academic. Uh, in this speech, he said that he never studied Merleau-Ponty and Sartre, and that especially he never subscribed to their readings of Husserl and phenomenology in general. With so much Merleau-Ponty, Merleau-Ponty, by the way, was another famous phenomenologist. He wrote a very famous book called The Phenomenology of Perception, so this is why he's involved in this conversation. With so much Merleau-Ponty archival material available, it is possible now, however, to see similarities between Merleau-Ponty's final studies of Husserl and Derrida's first studies, so they kind of overlap there. Nevertheless, even if one knows Merleau-Ponty's thought well, one is taken aback by Derrida's 150-page long introduction to his French translation of Husserl's The Origin of Geometry. Now, props to Derrida, right? Here we have the, 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 you know, the, the godfather of deconstruction or what have you, writing a French translation of Husserl's The Origin of Geometry, a mathematical text. So, Derrida is not adverse to this analytic form of thinking. He's just suspicious of it because he's 
he's like Nietzsche. He's into etymologies. He's, he's into origins or the study of their uh, right. Uh, back to uh, Professor Mahler. Derrida's introduction looks to be a radically new understanding of Husserl insofar as Derrida stresses the problem of language in Husserl's thought of history. And this is where Derrida begins to blow up in this study of language. While Derrida's intensive work on Husserl and phenomenology was primarily limited to the late 1960s and to the publication of the book Voice and Phenomena in 1967, this one book produced many criticisms of his reading of Husserl. Most notable is, I would imagine, J. J. Claude Evans, that's probably Jean, uh, Claude Evans' Strategies of Deconstruction, Derrida and the Myth of the Voice, and this was published in 1991. And again, that's a critique of Derrida's reading of Husserl. Although throughout his career, Derrida would mention Husserl in passing, he surprisingly wrote a chapter on Husserl in his book, Touching Jean-Luc Nancy. And it's touching colon Jean-Luc Nancy. It's not like he's touching Jean-Luc Nancy. So just don't misinterpret what I just read. Uh, one of the places where he mentions Husserl is his 1971 address to a communication conference in Montreal. And the title of this talk is Signature Event Context. He publishes this article as the final chapter of Margins in Philosophy, another book that was published in 1972. While the essay signature event context contains a short discussion of Husserl, its real focus is, uh, and I believe this is a JW, right, uh, Rob? AL. AL, sorry, uh, Austin. JL. JL, that's what I thought. Sorry, my mistake. JL Austin Speech Act Theory. Uh, the connection Derrida makes between Husserl's phenomenology and Austin's speech act theory, and again, for those of you, this is all language and philosophy, philosophy of language stuff. Um, the reason for making these connections is that both makes uh, is that both reject citations from the realm of meaningfulness in the case of Husserl or from the performative in the case of Austin, as Derrida's argument. In any case, the English translation of signature event context appeared in the first volume of the new journal Glyph in 1977. The editor of Glyph, Sam Weber, invited Chung Searle to write a response to signature event history. All right, so this is, you know, you're a famous guy, you start this new uh, journal, and so you invite a very famous philosopher, John Searle, to write a response to another famous philosopher, Derrida, who's on the other side of the analytic continental divide, right? And they're writing about a guy who's right in the middle of this divide, who is Searle. So uh, John Searle agrees to do this and writes his response titled, Re Reiterating the Differences, a Reply to Derrida. And in it, Searle points out a number of flaws in Derrida's argumentation and his understanding of Austin. For the second volume of Glyph, also published in 1977, Derrida contributed a response to Searle's reply called Limited Ink ABC. In contrast to Searle's 10-page reply, Derrida's Limited Ink ran to 90 pages. Derrida is unforgiving. Derrida's limited ink is an almost merciless criticism of Searle, who he calls Sorrel. <laughs> yes, because, <laughs> you know, there's no reason not to be petty. Uh, for instance, he points out that Searle, in his reply, hardly mentions signature event or context. Limited ink indicates Derrida's growing frustration with the reception of his work, especially in the Anglophone world. And here we go. Here it comes. His frustration must have culminated when he was offered an honorary degree at Cambridge University in 1992. A group of analytic philosophers wrote an, wrote an open letter, which is available online, to the Times of London, in which they objected to Derrida receiving this honorary degree. Right? So you have these analytic philosophers from Cambridge saying, how can our university grant a degree to this guy of all people? 
Despite the letter, Cambridge University awarded Derrida the degree because what? Optics, brand. You want Derrida associated with Cambridge and you don't care what your faculty have to say about that because, hey, Derrida is a huge name and that group of philosophers apparently was not bigger than Derrida. This kind of puts into context and fast forward here in terms of the uh, entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. This kind of speaks to the generation that uh, Derrida grew up with and that he eulogized uh, uh, that were called the incorruptibles. And Helen Sissou has a great quote about this. Helen Sissou, another very famous French feminist, great essay called The Life of the Medusa. Uh, Helen Sissou calls this generation of French philosophers the incorruptibles. In the last interview Derrida gave to Le Monde in August 19, 2004, he provided an interpretation of the incorruptibles. Quote, by means of metonymy, I call this approach of the incorruptibles an intransigent, even incorruptible ethos of writing and thinking, without concession even to philosophy, and not letting public opinion, the media, or the phantasm of an intimidating readership frighten or force us into simplifying or repressing. Hence, the strict taste for refinement, paradox, and aporia, aporia, that's what it is. I had to, I had to look that one up, to aporia, uh, which for those of you who don't know what aporia means, it's basically a, a statement that created, that contains its own kind of internal contradiction. It's like the academics said that all academics lie. Well, that statement contains a contradiction in that I am an academic saying that all academics lie, so can you trust the statement itself, right? That is an aporia. Derrida proclaims that Today, more than ever, quote, this predilection for paradox and aporia remains a requirement. And so it's this, uh, I think that the, the ethos of the incorruptibles is a kind of like unyielding integrity that is committed towards uh, not selling out to what society wants from you. And I think Adorno represented that in the way he lived his life, even as bougie, as I might have seen, and, and open to criticism. Uh, when it came to his thinking, he was uncompromising. And I think that's what Derrida and Henry Sissou and this generation of intellectuals uh, see in themselves and in their writing with this, the incorruptibles and the fact that we are unwilling to compromise with the establishment because we know what reform gets us. Nothing. Uh, again, fast forwarding now to the concept of deconstruction. As we said at the beginning, deconstruction is the most famous of Derrida's terms. He seems to have a appropriated the term from Heidegger's use of destruction in being in time. I can neither confirm nor disconfirm that. Uh, but we can get a general sense of what Derrida means with deconstruction by recalling Descartes' first meditation. I think this is important. There Descartes says that for a long time he has been making mistakes. Who doesn't, Rene? Don't worry about it. The criticism of his former beliefs, both mistaken and valid, aims towards uncovering a firm and permanent foundation. And this is the point, right? The idea that in the Enlightenment, we're going to get this firm and permanent foundation that guarantees that we exist and that our reason is valid. The image of a foundation implies that the collection of his former beliefs, Descartes, resembles a building. In the first meditation, then, Descartes is, in effect, taking down this old building, quote, deconstructing. We have also seen how much Derrida is indebted to traditional transcendental philosophy, which really starts here with Descartes, Descartes' search for a, quote, firm and permanent, firm and permanent foundation. But with Derrida, we know now the foundation is not a unified self, but a divisible limit between myself and myself as an other. Again, subject and object, the paradox of subjectivity, or what uh, Derrida also refers to as the auto effect 
autoaffection as heteroaffection or origin-heterogenes. Derrida has provided many definitions of deconstruction, but three definitions are classical. The first is early, being found in, 19, in the 1971 interview published in Positions and in the 1972 preface to Dissemination. At this stage in his career, Derrida speaks of metaphysics as if the Western philosophical tradition was monolithic and homogeneous. And in some ways it is. At times, he also speaks of Platonism, so he basically calls the Western philosophical tradition Platonism, which I love, as Nietzsche called it. Right? Nietzsche did the same thing. Simply, deconstruction is a criticism of Platonism, which is defined by the belief that existence is structured in terms of oppositions, separate substances and forms. Right? This is a famous argument that Plato made about the forms, and that the oppositions are hierarchical, with one side of the opposition being more valuable than the other. So these are binaries, and one side of the binary will be more valuable than the other side of the binary. The first phase of deconstruction attacks this belief by reversing the Platonistic hierarchies the hierarchies between the invisible or intelligible and the visible or sensible, between essence and appearance, between the soul and body, between living memory and rote memory. You want to tell me with this one, Ron? Between... Anime and hypognosis. Thank you. Between voice and writing, between finally good and evil. So again, the divisions and one is hierarchically more valuable than the other. In order to clarify deconstruction's two phases, let us restrict ourselves to one specific opposition, the opposition between appearance and essence, which goes all the way back to Kant. Prior to Derrida, Nietzsche had also criticized this opposition, and it is criticized in a lot of 20th century philosophy. So, in Platonism, essence is more valuable than appearance, right? Because essence can, is related to the form, the reality that underlies the appearance of reality. In deconstruction, however, we reverse this, making appearance more valuable than essence. And that's kind of like the second phase of deconstruction. How? How does this happen? Here we could resort to the empiricist arguments in Hume, for example, that show that all knowledge of what we call essence depends on the experience of what appears. But then this argumentation would, simply, would imply that essence and appearance are not related to one another as separate oppositional poles. And this is where Derrida begins to deconstruct this separation. The argumentation, in other words, would show us that essence can be reduced down to a variation of appearances involving the roles of memory and anticipation, right? what appears. The reduction is a reduction to what we can call eminence which carries a sense of within or in. So we would say that what we used to call essence, essence is found in appearance. Essence is mixed into appearance. Essence is not separate from appearance. That's the point. Now, we can trace back a bit in the history of Western metaphysics on the basis of the reversal of the essence-appearance hierarchy and on the basis of the reduction of two eminence, right, to this one thing as opposed to two separate things, we can see that something like a decision, and perhaps an impossible decision, must have been made at the beginning of the metaphysical tradition, a decision that instituted the hierarchy of essence-appearance and separated essence from appearance. What, so what Derrida is arguing here is that if we go back into history, at some point in philosophy, a decision to separate appearance from essence happened, and that this decision made all the difference in terms of what would follow in the philosophical tradition. Uh, this decision is what really defines Platonism or metaphysics. After this retrospection, we can turn now to a second step in the reversal reduction of Platonism, which is the second phase of deconstruction. 
the previously inferior term must be re-inscribed as the origin or resource of the opposition in hierarchy arts itself. How would this reinscription or redefinition of appearance work? Well, here we have to return to the idea that every appearance or every experience is temporal. This is the Heidegger moment where time is connected to our to our experience, right? We cannot separate ex time from human experience. In the experience of the present, the now, there is always a small difference between the moment of nowness and the past and the future. And this will become very important when we start to talk about language and writing uh, and Phaedrus. So just keep this in the back of your mind. The present is always slightly contaminated by, what, uh, by, by the future, the immediate future and the immediate past. Think of this sentence while I'm speaking. In order for you to make sense of what I'm saying, you have to anticipate what is going to come next and remember what came before it in order for the sentence to have any meaning. That is how the present functions. It's always an anticipation of a future and always related to an immediate past. This is perhaps possibly connected to what Hume had already discovered, uh, the small difference when in the treaties he speaks of the idea of relation. So think of the relationship of the present to the future and to the past. It's kind of interconnected uh, or at least contaminated. In any case, this infinitesimal difference is not only a difference that is non-dualistic, in other words, it's not separate, it's not one or the other, it's, it's both, but also it is a difference that is, as Derrida would say, undecidable. And that's going to be a key concept in Derrida, the undecidable. Although the minuscule difference is virtually unnoticeable in everyday common experience, when we in fact notice it, we cannot decide if we are experiencing a memory or a present perception if we are experiencing a present perception or an anticipation. When we notice the difference, we are indeed experiencing the present, no doubt, but the present is recognized as contaminated by the past and future. This contamination is what Derrida would call the trace, which destabilizes the original decision that instituted the higher. So Derrida's point is that when you take these binaries that are hierarchical, and you trace them, pun intended, back to their origins, what you realize is that the separation is artificial, and sometime in the past, these two words were interconnected. And at some point, that, quote, decision that uh, Derrida uh, called attention to was made, uh, specifically Platonistic decision, and there, from there on, uh, we had this dualistic understanding of Western metaphysics. Um, one of Derrida's most famous examples of this, of this deconstructive exercise in finding the trace of an original decision in a term critical to a foundational text in Western philosophical, in the, in the Western philosophical tradition itself, or Platonism, is ironically one of Plato's most famous texts, Phaedrus. Derrida's essay, Plato's Pharmacy, one of his most famous essays, if not perhaps the most famous after difference, I would argue, can be understood as a critique of the Western philosophical tradition of privileging presence, as seen in Plato's treatment of the pharmacon, the word, a concept, in this play, Phaedrus. And so, Rob, you're kind of an expert on this play. Do you want to quickly summarize it? Yeah. Uh, actually, I only know parts of it, right? Um, so in giving an overview of it, essentially Phaedrus... Um, lures Socrates outside of Athens, right? So they're by a river outside of Athens, right? 
And it's very erotic, the opening of this dialogue, right? Because Socrates is telling Phaedrus, who's younger than Socrates is. Socrates is an older man at this point. And so Phaedrus is this attractive young guy. Socrates had a thing for attractive young guys, right? And he tells Phaedrus, just recline in any old way you want to, right? So there's something very erotic that opens this dialogue that's about sophistry and about truth, right? And about right? Um, memory versus writing, speech versus writing, presence versus absence, right? Um, so essentially, we, we start with this erotic situation outside of the city limits of Athens, right? And then we get to what Derrida is attacking in Platonism, right? Who gets to decide what counts, right? What appearance is valid, right? What is the essence of a thing, right? So that's essentially what's going on in this dialogue, according to me. Okay, excellent. Thanks for that summary so absolutely it's uh this young guy Phaedrus lures and Socrates calls this luring this kind of like uh, baiting uh, a pharmacon he says like you have lured me out here into the wilderness next to this river where ironically the legend says that this is where pharma and uh this I forget the young woman who was swept away by the north wind uh, the Greek myth. It's Pharmakia. It's Pharmakia, and she's yeah. with someone else, right? Pharmakia is not the one that gets swept away. She stays, but the other uh, young maiden that's there with her does get swept away by the North Wind. Anyway, uh, so Socrates knows where they're at. It's like, you know, again, layered textuality here. And what Socrates says is like, you told me you just heard this great speech by Lysias and that you, you were going to you know, recite it to me. And so Phaedrus, correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, but Phaedrus is like, okay, I'm going to paraphrase And Socrates is like, no, 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 no. We don't paraphrase here. We <laughs> exactly. recite. You, and he's like, well, I got to admit, you know, I didn't remember. I didn't memorize, <laughs> you know, the way I should have. And, and Socrates is like, I knew it. But I see that you're carrying a text that you're trying to hide there. So why don't you just read from the speech and so I can just hear it, right? And, and, and Phaedrus is like, okay, you got me. I was, you know. And note, right, the subtle eroticism of Phaedrus hiding something in, right, his cloak. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. he's hiding the, the written text, which is bad. He pulls it out and, no pun intended, he pulls it out and he starts to read from it. And then Socrates just basically laughs at the argument. It's like, that's a weak argument. I can make a better argument right here on the spot without having to read anything, right? And again, showing the power of speech overriding at that moment. Right, so Socrates basically gives a great impromptu speech that outdoes Lysias' speech, which is, which is written down and was read out loud by Phaedrus, who's a poser, apparently. So uh, after he does this, uh, Socrates doubles down and tells Phaedrus, let me even tell you this other story about like the origins of writing and like why writing is bad. And it goes all the way back to uh, kind of Egyptian mythology and when the moon god, who is secondary to the sun god, is presenting all these gifts. And I forget the names, I apologize. Um, he presents the gift of writing to the sun god. And the sun god's like, no, no, we don't need that. And he goes like, but this, this gift of writing will uh, help uh, assist human beings in that they will no longer have to memorize stuff. They can just read from it. And the sun god is like, that's exactly the problem, right? This this pharmacon of writing that you're offering me is actually not a remedy. It is poison, right? So and pharmacon back then still means both poison and remedy, and it got translated as remedy. And that's where Derrida says, that's where the problem began, that decision of differentiating the poison from the remedy and just calling writing a remedy, when in reality it was supposed to be both. And so uh, 
humankind no longer needs memorization and we see the problems of this emerge in the play itself with Phaedrus unable to remember Lysias' speech. So it's almost like exhibit A is right here and therefore writing is rendered to secondary status in the metaphysical tradition as a secondary to speech which is associated with presence and an ethos of, of you know, you see the person who's talking and therefore uh, speech is much more of a remedy than writing is a remedy. And at the and so the problem is that the the interconnectedness of remedy and poison, their uh, inseparability, if you will, uh, is separated. And this is what, when a uh, an undecidable, the pharmacon becomes a binary. Right, we get rid of the word pharmacon, which is undecidable because it means two things at the same time, and from there we get remedy on the one side and poison on the other, and speech is associated with remedy, and writing is associated with poison. Would you say that's decent, Ron? As far as a that's good, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that's what Derrida is centering on when he deconstructs this play, uh, and so basically what Derrida highlights is the irony that. Plato is writing a play that highlights the hierarchical position of speech, which makes the play ironic at the very least as a written text, right? Because you mean the dialogue, the dialogue, not the play, not the play. It's a dialogue. Sorry. I always call dialogues plays for some reason, because it's <laughs> like a play to me, but you're right. It's not a mm -hmm. play. There's no, well, there is a setting, but not in a play sense. Um, so uh, Derrida's, relationship to that notion of difference between the present in relationship to the future and the past and that trace that the present always carries of the future and of the past is what he's trying to call attention to in the word pharmacon. The pharmacon as a word always carries a trace of the other, right? The trace of the poison when it's a remedy and the trace of a remedy when it's a poison. And there are various chemicals and medicines in our society in our world today that function as both right uh, morphine is a very common example it could be a remedy and it can very quickly turn into a poison and kill you uh, derrida's deconstruction of the word pharmacon in plato's pharmacy is meant to highlight this notion of the undecidables that the undecidables came first these words that always meant their opposites were first and at some point platonism instituted this artificial division so just to return to this philosophical journey of going from identity paradox to pharmacon via an identity and deconstruction and before moving on to the anti-racist part, I just want to do a little bit of like bow tying with Adorno and Derrida. In 2001, Derrida was awarded the Theodore W. Adorno Prize, which I didn't even know existed prior to this uh, podcast episode. Uh, and this is from uh, the article Adorno's Other Son, Derrida and the Future of Critical Theory from Jean-Philippe uh, uh, I don't know what this word is, Ficus or Ficus, uh, published a as a book, the speech that Jacques Derrida delivered in Frankfurt in September 2001 in acceptance of the Theodore W. Adorno Prize. This little autobiographical text might seem to be of interest only for those who care about Derrida's person. Notably, it can be read as a surreptitious announcement by the philosopher of his imminent death. He died of cancer, I think pancreatic. Um, however, Derrida made this announcement through a complex discursive strategy that suggested a strong identification with individual with the individual destinies of the intellectual projects of Adorno and Benjamin, in this case, Walter Benjamin. The personal turns out to have tremendous philosophical importance as it gives Derrida 
the opportunity to engage in an astonishing reassessment of the relationship between deconstruction and critical theory. So I, just, I wanted to read that because I think it highlights that at the end of his life, Derrida sees important affinities with Adorno, uh, perhaps in letting suffering literally speak and the idea of the incorruptibility and say what you will about Adorno, as we said already, he was hardly apologetic. Uh, and Walter Benjamin deserves his own kind of uh, podcast time because he's too big and too beautiful a historical figure, intellectually speaking, to just do something in passing. But I, I will have to later on for an important reason. But one quote that I think highlights all of their respective investment in questions of social justice is um, Derrida on precisely the concept of justice. And this is back to the Stanford Encyclopedia. Even though justice is impossible and therefore always to come in or from the future, Justice is not, for Derrida, a Kantian ideal, which brings us to the third aporia. This is obviously uh, in context, so I apologize for not listening to the first two. The third is called, quote, the urgency that obstructs the horizon of knowledge, and that's from deconstruction and the possibility of justice. Derrida stresses the Greek etymology of the word horizon. Quote, as a Greek name suggests, a horizon is both the opening and limit that defines an infinite progress or a period of waiting, end quote. Justice, however, even though it is unpresentable, does not wait. A just decision is always required immediately. It cannot furnish itself with unlimited knowledge. The moment of decision itself remains a finite moment of urgency and precipitation. The instant of decision is in the moment of madness, acting in the night of non-knowledge and non-rule. Once again, we have a moment of eruptive violence. This urgency is why justice has no horizon of expectation, either regulative or messianic. In other words, people, justice does not wait and justice cannot be regulated or compromised. And I see we see way too much of that nowadays. Justice remains an event yet to come. Perhaps one must always say can be. The French word for perhaps is, Rob? Peut-être. Again? Peut-être. Peut-être. Yep. Which literally means can be. Justice can be. It's an ideal, but not a Kantian one. For, uh, and that's in relationship with justice. This ability for justice aims, however, towards what is impossible. Even though the word deconstruction has been bandied about, we can see now the kind of thinking in which deconstruction engages. There's a the kind of thinking that never finds itself at the end. Justice, this undeniable, is impossible. Perhaps justice is the impossible. And therefore, it is necessary to make justice possible in countless ways. And that's what I wanted to read out loud. Just because justice is philosophically impossible doesn't mean you don't try to realize it in countless ways because it's impossible to be realized in just one way, which is why we're waiting for people to speak out from positions of power about what's going on in Minneapolis right now, for example. And again, that's from the Stanford Encyclopedia, Professor Lawler's intro. This reminds me a lot of Adorno on Utopia. Uh, Adorno talks a lot about how Utopia is impossible also, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't, it's not, a, it can't be a goal. Uh, just because you are aspiring towards a Utopia that you know you're going to come up short against is precisely why you need to make it a perpetual project. Utopia is always a project that you need to be engaged with, just like justice is for Derrida. It's always active. You're always finding a way to get better. Anything to add to that, Rob? 
I think I'm good right now. Okay. So racial identity as both paradox and pharmacon. Back to the title and anti-racism. The main idea here is to communicate first and foremost the complicated nature of human identity in general. The paradox that Husserl called attention to in his later work. My thesis for this podcast is that identity is already a paradox. But when you throw in the variable of race, then racial identity functions as a more pronounced version of the paradox theorized by people like Husserl, Adorno, and Derrida. Racial identity becomes a pharmacon, an undecidable that functions both as remedy and poison, never being just one or the other. Racial identity can make someone feel agentic, like an agent, perhaps even equal to more mainstream identities promoted as models in a society that perpetuates racialized thinking. What's so poisonous about that? Well, the objectivity, the objectness of the racialized body can also get you killed. This is a so-called debate around Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is not an identity politics. It is not promoting an identity as unique or superior, like the Nazis did with white identity, or in their case, Aryan identity, which is not even an identity. Black Lives Matter is a reminder that black bodies don't matter in American society and that they should matter. That's it. They don't matter. And we're here to remind you that they should. They should that you can't just go around killing black bodies without consequences or any accountability. The George Floyd murder and the subsequent rebellion showed that this won't be tolerated. So what's the immediate identity thinking reaction to Black Lives Matter? to engage in identity politics, to transform this into an identitarian Tucker Carlson-like debate about all lives matter or blue lives matter. Nobody's saying that all lives don't matter. In fact, they're actually holding us accountable by reminding us that not all lives matter equally because black lives are taken indiscriminately and disproportionately by the state with all its available apparatuses to help frame history according to their established narratives. We kill only to maintain law and order, which, as Adorno and Derrida both taught us, law and order has nothing to do with justice. The Nazis had plenty of laws and plenty of order. This is the pharmacon of race. It is a remedy and a poison. It's both, always. The day it stops being one, it will have to cease being the other. The day we don't need to uplift our racialized bodies as worthy of life and dignity will be the day we no longer divide people along the basis of race. And the day we stop using race to divide is the day we no longer need to lift up our racialized identities, as lifting will become unnecessary. The day black lives actually matter in the U.S. systemically will be the day that black lives matter is no longer necessary as a movement. And that's the point. Okay, quickly, some names that will pop up in future episodes, but that have nevertheless been influenced by the theories we've been discussing in this two-part intro episode. I think Adorno isn't too necessary to elaborate, as he was a Jewish intellectual fighting the Nazis, at least intellectually, he would never get his hands dirty uh, fighting in the streets, uh, along with other Jewish, uh, famous Jewish intellectuals like Walter Benjamin, who we mentioned earlier, who actually committed suicide, which actually allows other Jews to escape that he was with at the time uh, while they were all trapped in the Pyrenees on the border between Spain and France and they were being threatened with being sent back to France and uh, Walter Benjamin committed suicide uh, via morphine. But you see some of the overlap in Adorno's critique of Hegel, for example, and his use of psychoanalysis, especially because Adorno and the French school are famous for using psychoanalysis and Marx's 
critical traditions in their work in the theories and writings of someone like Franz Fanon, for example, who also took on uh, Hegel. Uh, and Derrida was even more influential as are our entire works dedicated to his influence on post-colonial thought in particular. Uh, one book that uh, I I know it was very influential for me, uh, published back in 1985, that captures the influence of Derrida is a collection edited by Henry Louis Gates Jr. He is the famous uh, professor of Harvard, I believe, or Yale, I forget which one, uh, who was arrested outside his own home while Obama was president by a police officer because one of the neighbors called the cops saying a black man is trying to enter his house. Actually, it was Henry Louis, Henry Louis Gates Jr. coming back from Europe trying to get into his house at like two in the morning. The cops showed up because a neighbor called. He's already inside his house. The police get there. They ask him, like, hey, someone called and said there was a break-in. He's like, no, there's no break-in. I'm the one that lives here. It's all good. The cops were like, well, can we come inside? He's like, no, I don't want you inside my house. Technically, when someone calls the cops on a break-in, they're supposed to be able to go inside your house to make sure that you are not being forced at gunpoint to say that no, there's nobody here. So they have to confirm that you are freely saying that of your own volition. Henry was too tired and didn't want that noise. He ends up getting arrested outside his own house. <laughs> and eventually, the way that our neoliberal president, Barack Obama, at the time wanted to uh, deal with the violence of police racism uh, is to have a beer at the White House. And they called it Beer Gate. And you can fact check all that mess. Anyway, back to uh, writing indifference, uh, the, the Derrida text that influenced this book, which is titled Race, Writing Indifference, again, edited by Henry Louis Gates Jr., uh, I'm just going to read some of the names, and this book is very much uh, influenced by Derrida, as you can tell by the play on the title. Uh, Anthony Apaya, Edward Said, Abdul Aljar Mohammed, Mary Louise Pratt, Homi K. Baba, uh, Gayatri uh, uh, Spivak, Barbara Johnson, and there's other names. Obviously, they even include uh, San Teodoro, they include Derrida in there. So, Derrida was incredibly influential in uh, post-colonial theory and deconstructing racism uh, at the kind of academic intellectual level. So uh, it's important to highlight that fact that uh, we're not talking about Adorno and Derrida here because we're just interested in, oh, how smart these guys are and we're so smart for understanding them. No, this has a lot to do with the history of anti-racist theory and anti-racist praxis as it's connected to an intellectual tradition that was itself already being critical of the kind of European tradition of how we understand the world and relate to each other. All right. Rob, you're on, because I'm out of gas. All right. Um, what I would add is, I think the central myth that Socrates unpacks for us in the Phaedrus is, and uh, Carlos basically alluded to this earlier, right? The king, famous, is basically deciding what a word means, right? And we're seeing this in the way protests have been portrayed, right? Especially in mainstream media, right? Where protesters are characterized as rioters, right? It's another version of the pharmacon, right? Depending on your own subject position, who you are, right? What makes you who you are, how you view things, right? How a protester can appear as a rioter, right? Um, and so it's very much based on your own ethical subjectivity, right? Your own morality, how you see the events unfolding around us. And this is very much related to the decision-making that Derrida is talking about all the time, how anytime we make a decision, we make an interpretation, 
we're leaving out, we're reducing attacks, we're reducing events in the world, right? This is an important point. How in order to master things, we reduce them, right? So we can manage them intellectually. And it, basically his philosophy, along with other philo philosophical schools and theoretical schools are pushing against that, right? Trying to foreground the excess in everything that happens in the world, everything that exists, every subject and object, right? And this is important, right? Getting beyond the reductiveness that all of us engage in to understand, right? Who we are, our place in the world, right? What's going on around us, right? So it's not just ivory tower um, wordsmithery, right? That's empty. These have important real world implications, um, which we see every day living where we do in Minneapolis, right? And reading the mainstream organ here, the Star Trib, and the fact that they publish basically police reports as journalism. Excellent, excellent points. And just to kind of bring it back to Husserl, Derrida, Adorno, and this, and, and the Platonism that they're all criticizing in many ways, the appearance versus essence debate that goes all the way back to Plato. I think you make an excellent point. Just think of when you, when, you know, when uptowners see these groups of Black Lives Matter activists arriving, right? Their appearance speaks for itself. They are there to highlight something that is not being highlighted enough. But the people that are throwing eggs out their condominium windows or the people that are trying to you know, ram their cars into these protesters because they are unwanted, their appearance is irrelevant because they already know the essence of what these protesters are. And their essence is Antifa, violent, criminal, looter, rioters, you know, troublemakers. They're, they're basically terroristic, right, in their essence. And so you, what I think what you bring up, Rob, is a great example in the sense that regardless of how what people appear to be doing, right, George Floyd Square, George Floyd Square, well, people appear to be happy interacting with each other here in a very peaceful way. Yeah, but we know that underlying that is the essence of who they truly are and that can appear at any given moment. That is how people get, that's how the body gets overdetermined. That's how the subjectivity, the selfhood, the self of the people like uh, Winston Smith, for example, or Diana Marie, this is how their humanity gets dehumanized. They are objectively reduced to something that whether they are that or not is irrelevant because I know their essence. I know what they truly are underneath their appearance. And that is what Rob is talking about. Those are the labels that come back to haunt us. Those are the identities imposed upon us that end up costing the lives of people like Winston Smith and Diana Marie Natjek and uh, Heather Heyer and so George Floyd and so many other people that are literally on the streets trying to call attention in the case of people of those activists on the streets trying to call attention to injustices that are happening and, and end up dying for it. Why? Because they are portrayed as being less than in the dichotomy of good citizen versus bad citizen, of law-abiding versus criminal, of, you know, wanting to get back to normal and going to help us get there versus those people that keep complaining and want to bring the city down. You can't bring the city down, it's bringing itself down. And it's important to remember that Socrates was all about law and order. So that's an important point. Yeah, as was Plato, word on the street mm -hmm. has it. So yeah, remember Plato kicked out the artists, kicked out the poets, kicked out everyone from his state, which is the Republic, right? And uh, 
It's only law and order. And uh, you get rid of those people that complain, right? You get rid of those people that raise too many issues. Uh, there's no dialectics there, even though Socrates kind of invented the method. But whatever, you know, hypocrisy is part of the part of the script there, part of the playbook. So uh, anything to add as we uh, sign up here, Rob? That has been a full, this has been a full program, right? I think you covered a lot. Yeah. Um, good job, Gabe. Oh, well, thank you. And excellent job as co-hosting here. Feel free to drop by anytime. I know you have so much time on your hands and uh, nothing else to do, especially in good old Minneapolis, the <laughs> Mary Tyler Moore city where you can just walk downtown and throw your hat up in the air. Um, yeah, so uh, thank you again. Uh, listening audience for uh, joining us. Uh, hopefully the title makes a little more sense now. Uh, don't forget to check out the uh, episode notes and links on the uh, website, theidentityparadox.com. And this is available on SoundCloud, as you probably already know. Uh, and yeah, until next time, hopefully two weeks from now, I'm planning to go down to the U.S.-Mexico border and check things out there. So I might be reporting back from that. Uh, utopian situation. Yeah. <laughs> getting better yeah. and better down there. So anyway. Describe the wall. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I'll, I'll make sure to bring back pics. Um, yeah. Thank you, Professor Rob Kendrick, for joining us. It was a pleasure. You, Professor Carlos. Uh, yeah. Thank you, listening audience. We'll see you uh, next episode. Stay safe, please. Oh, and don't forget to please subscribe to future episodes if you enjoyed today's Thanks.